On a Wednesday, this is Ask the Mayor on GPB Atlanta 88.5 radio and video streaming on Facebook at GPB News. I'm Ricky Bevington, live at our Midtown studio with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Thank you for being here, as always. Mayor Bottoms is answering your questions live this hour, and here is how you submit a question. On Facebook, go to the GPB News page. You'll see a live video stream of the mayor and me right here in the studio and you can post your question in the comment section of that video stream. Here are some audience-led topics the mayor will discuss this hour, bringing the Democratic presidential debate to Atlanta, creating a memorial for the victims of the Atlanta child murders, and what to do about gang violence. We've gotten a lot of great questions this month, and so Mayor Bottoms, are you ready for these questions and more? Stay ready, you don't have to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> Like any mayor should. So as always, we begin with recent news. The Democratic National Committee has reportedly chosen Tyler Perry Studios in Southwest Atlanta as the location for the November 20th presidential Democratic debate. Now, the DNC has not confirmed this, so before we even get to questions that have come in about this, can you, Mayor Bottoms, confirm that the November 20th Democratic presidential debate will be taking place at Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta? I cannot confirm that, and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to jump ahead of any announcement that the DNC or MSNBC will make on that. But I can say, um, as everyone knows, they've chosen Atlanta, and Atlanta also includes a large metro area. But we are just delighted that the debate will be here, and I think it really is indicative of how important the city and the state will be to the next election. Any reason that you know of why the DNC has not made an official announcement? Well, obviously there are, are things that have to be done and finalized, et cetera. But we've known for quite some time that the debate would be held here in November. And so we'll just await the official announcement. We certainly will be, and we'll be reporting that immediately on GPB News for our audience. So Carol Schneier um, actually immediately sent us an email once we learned this news. She says, according to the AJC, the Democratic National Committee had wanted the debate to be held in Sandy Springs at the city's new entertainment complex to help U.S. Representative Lucy McBath's chances for re-election in that district, the 6th district. Uh, Carol asks, why did you dispute this choice and ask that Tyler Perry's studio at Fort McPherson be used instead? Well, I'm the mayor of Atlanta, so it's always my job to make the case for Atlanta, whether it be for where a debate is hosted or a Super Bowl is hosted or any number of things. So that's my job as mayor. Uh, my job is to push, push, push for Atlanta every opportunity that I get. And what I will say is that I, I think the fact that it is coming to Atlanta, a very large metropolitan area, I think is significant in and of itself. And I think it is significant in that um, not just for Congresswoman Macbeth, but for any number of other officials who believe that this state is ready to turn blue. Well, that was going to be my question. What is, regardless of which candidate gets a nomination, what is Georgia's role going to be in the next presidential election? I think Georgia is in play, and I think the nation obviously recognizes that. Um, we know that Bill Clinton carried Georgia 
um, a very long time ago, but not that long ago um, in terms of presidential elections. And I think that when you look at the last governor's race and you see how close that race was, then it's obvious that um, Georgia is a state that's clearly purple. And whether or not we go red or blue remains to be seen. But I think that there's obviously um, a belief that it's a significant state and will play a significant role in the 2020 election by virtue of the fact that the DNC has chosen to host a debate here. And we look forward to their official comments uh, once, once they will speak to the media and confirm this. Thank you, DNC. We're waiting. So Isabel Blackburn actually emails, how do we obtain tickets to the debate? That's a good question. I don't have the answer to that yet. This, again, is a debate that is hosted by the DNC, and I am sure that they will share that information. Um, I understand that there will be roughly 1,000 tickets available. Um, so I, I don't have details on how those will be distributed. I don't have my ticket yet. Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson is going to be resigning at the end of December due to health problems. Uh, speaking of changing uh, politics of Georgia, he is long-term Republican. Governor Kemp will be most likely uh, appointing a Republican to serve out the rest of his term. You were Johnny Isaacson's guest uh, earlier this year in Washington at the President Trump's uh, State of the Union address. So what does Isaacson's retirement mean to you? Well, I think that we have we are really losing an advocate for the city of Atlanta. And I've said quite often, Ricky, that I think Georgia really could be an example to the rest of the nation on how you work across the aisle. He has been a complete joy to work with. We don't always agree on policy, but it's about mutual respect and those things that we can come together on and agree upon. And it saddens me that he is leaving. And I hope that um, as the governor makes his appointment, I'm sure that he has a number of people to consider that he appoints someone who goes into Washington with that same mindset that it's not about party, it's about our state and it's about what's best for our communities. We should say I think about 500 people have applied to the governor. At least. Replace <laughs> Governor uh, Senator Isaacson and that person would serve out about 10 months before having to actually run for re-election to sit for another six years as Georgia's senator. Which is another reason why it's important um, that the party and the nation look at the state of Georgia. It's not often that you have two Senate seats that will be up at the same time in addition to the presidential race. Democrats have thrown their hat in the ring for both Isaacson's seat and to challenge uh, Senator David Perdue. And Chuck Fagan asks on Facebook, are you endorsing in the Senate race? He doesn't just specify which one, but I will ask uh, Chuck this question for on, on Chuck's behalf, this question. I've not made an endorsement in either Senate race, but I have made an endorsement in the presidential race. I've been out stumping for Joe Biden and um, I'm not sure when and if I'll make an endorsement in the Senate race, Senate races. Interestingly, we did not get any questions about your stumping for Joe Biden, but I would expect that that to be coming maybe next month or as we get closer to election day, well, I, still I, a year away. I hope that means the entire <laughs> audience agrees with my endorsement. <laughs> Unfortunately, that tends not to be the case <laughs> with independent-minded Georgians, as we will find in these uh, the subsequent questions we have this hour. Um, so we actually have a really interesting question from Handsome on Paper. Who tweets? We're, we're sticking with the the political theme. Right. This is about ranked choice voting. 
which most Americans are not familiar with. Ansem on paper tweets, would Keisha Bottoms support a change to a ranked choice voting system for future Atlanta mayoral elections? I would not. It's a very complicated system. Um, I, I can't speak to the effectiveness of it. But for those who don't understand what it is, you essentially rank your candidates one, two, and three. Um, it's as, as I've read about it and I've heard about it, it's very complicated. And what I would say with the mayoral election, you get to go in nonpartisan election and the top two candidates, unless someone gets 50% plus one, goes into a runoff. That's a pretty simple system that's been very effective um, in this city for many, many years. And I don't see a reason that we should change it. Atlanta's mayoral elections, of course, are nonpartisan, however. What about for a partisan election where runoffs are very expensive? So this would effectively be an automatic runoff. I am um, very concerned at the complexity of switching our voting system to that type system. It is not an easy system to understand. And as we are working to make sure that there's integrity in our voting system in the way that it exists now, I think to change the entire system would further complicate that conversation. We have a Facebook message now. Uh, Moshe John Jones is watching on Facebook. He says, or he or she says, love the APD 30% pay raises to better the city of Atlanta. Of course, Atlanta Police Department. Some smaller communities in Atlanta have said that they are having trouble, excuse me, rather in Georgia have, have said that they're having trouble recruiting. Have you seen a real influx of officers applying from maybe smaller departments elsewhere in Georgia with this significant pay increase? We have seen a significant increase in the number of applicants to our police department and even officers who had chosen to leave the police department for pay are asking to come back in record numbers and it's significant. So the recruitment issues that some of these other cities are having used to be the conversation that we were having in Atlanta before we put in the 30% pay increase which is um, the largest pay increase in the history of our police department. And there's been a mixed conversation about that. Many people ask the question, given where we are with policing and some of the challenges that we're seeing across the country, why would we increase pay? And my response to that is we want the best officers that we can get. And we don't want officers who are resentful policing our communities. We don't want officers who feel as if they have to work two and three jobs um, in order to make ends meet. We want officers who want to be officers and want to have a productive relationship with our community. And I think that uh, we've hit we've hit the mark based on what we're seeing with a number of applicants and even our retention with our police force because we were losing officers in significant numbers. We actually do have a, uh, a question, um, skipping ahead a little bit about uh, officers and, and crime. One from Tom Malone who says, I live in Midtown and I've often read of the arrests of perpetrators who turn out to be repeat offenders released previously on signature bonds. Malone asks, I know we have a problem with jail overcrowding, but is this practice not making the residents of our city less safe? So our criminal justice system is a complicated system. You have the Atlanta Police Department. Many of our offenders go into the Fulton County Jail. They are charged and, and go before judges that sit 
on the Fulton County bench. And this is a conversation that we're having about these repeat offenders who are getting out on signature bonds. And what I will say is that it's going to take all of us continuing to work together to make sure that this system is fixed. It's not fair to our communities. It's not fair to our police officers who keep having to respond to the same people repeatedly. And even in Midtown where people are saying it's the same people committing the same crimes. And I think in the same way that our communities go to the ballot and hold elected officials like the mayor and city council members accountable, I think that we have to start doing that with our judges as well. My first election that I lost, by the way, um, I challenged a superior court judge, but it was because I didn't feel like he was doing a good job in terms of how he was treating offenders in our community. And I think that people have to be mindful that when you go and vote, don't just go in and vote for a president and walk out the door, vote down ba ballot, because you'll have an opportunity to vote for these judges and look at their record in the same way you would any other elected official. Not surprising, we got a lot of questions about crime, particularly gangs, uh, so we're gonna be revisiting that after this quick break. Uh, stick around, uh, Mayor Bottoms is live answering your questions here in the studio this hour. Still to come, your questions about creating a memorial to the victims of the Atlanta child murders and creating affordable housing for people living with HIV and much more. You can join our conversation on Facebook at the GPB News page. We will be right back. Mayor Bottoms in May, you asked law enforcement agencies to reopen the investigation into the Atlanta child murders. Wayne Williams, we know, is in prison, convicted of two of the more than two dozen murders. But Chastity Keys asks on Twitter, is there an update on reopening the cases of the 27 young black males who were killed between 1979 and 1981? And Keyes says, I understand Williams has been incarcerated for the two older men, but what about justice for the remaining youths? And there were actually two young girls who were included on that list as well. So when we asked uh, the Atlanta Police Department to look at these cases again, we also said there may be nothing new um, that gives us any further answers, but we wanted to make sure that we were doing all that we should do in 2019. So what I can say is that we are looking at cases before 1979 and after the conviction of Wayne Williams to make sure that there aren't other victims that should have been included. It's been very interesting, some of the information that we have come across and what's been very helpful, we have new investigators also looking at the evidence and some of these investigators weren't even born in 1979. So it's always helpful to have fresh eyes. But what I can say what's been interesting is that it looks as if as soon as Wayne Williams was convicted, then all the investigations stopped. And what the Atlanta Police Department is doing in conjunction with the DeKalb Police Department, the FBI, also uh, the GBI, is they are following the additional leads that were closed out when Wayne Williams was convicted to see if there's any other information. And, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I think it's safe to say that there are, there are many questions about some of the murders. Um, and this was not about Wayne Williams. It was not about determining his guilt or innocence specifically, but it really was about getting answers for many other families that just have been left without answers for the last 40 years.
It's extremely complicated and we can't go into all of the nuances of this case um, here today. But I was watching a, a video package from 11 Alive. You'd given an interview a couple of months ago and the reporter said that the FBI or the Atlanta police, I don't know which law enforcement agency had stopped investigating or I should say had only charged Williams with the adult murders because they didn't want to put the families of the children through the trial to hear all those gruesome details. It seems unimaginable that a, a law enforcement agency would say that today. Well, you know, you have to think about it. It was 40 years ago. Even the way that the investigations were conducted have changed. If you look at some of the news clippings, you'll see people walking through the crime scene. You'll see officers smoking cigarettes. People didn't have on gloves. Policing was very different 40 years ago. And I think that decisions were made at that time that people thought were the appropriate decisions. Um, but one of my favorite quotes is Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. So 40 years later, we're looking at it with 2019 policing techniques and we'll see where it leads us. And I think the most important part that I've seen from the families is that they recognize that their children still matter. And I know that they matter to Mayor Maynard Jackson, um, but many families didn't feel that way. And you have to think about it 40 years ago, Serial killers weren't a common conversation, and especially in the African-American community, and especially as it relates to children. So this was all new to so many people. But the fact that we are having a memorial um, created in memory of these kids, I think has given a great deal of comfort to many of the families. And if nothing else comes out of this, then that's the best outcome, that these families will know that their children matter then and they still matter now. Members of the families are participating in this 13 member um, task force that you've appointed to create uh, that memorial. When might we see a public proposal? It will be very soon and I hope I'm not giving anything away. I think this has been made public, but the location has been decided and it will be just outside of my window in the mayor's office um, on the Mitchell Street side of City Hall. If you are familiar with City Hall, there is green space in that area and the memorial will be there. And that's so significant because I think it's important that long after I'm mayor, that future mayors will be able to look at this memorial and remember our children in a significant way. And we'll have more details coming forward, but there'll be some other things. There'll be an exhibit at the airport and some other tributes um, to, to memorialize these children. Will it be a bench or a statue or a fountain? Any details like that? I think it will be much more significant than that. I think their pictures, I believe, will be displayed at the airport, which the world's busiest airport. There will be people from all over the world who will know that this happened. Even people on my team had never heard of this part of Atlanta's history. And so for us to now have this for the entire world to see, I think is significant. And then to have the lasting memorial at City Hall, I think will be an incredible uh, tribute to the legacy of these children. 
Well, thank you for revealing those details. I don't know if they'd been made public, but we'll probably find out in a few minutes. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this with someone, but um, you get the breaking news. So. Well, thank you. And I know that uh, there's been a lot of popular media coverage about the Atlanta child murders, which suggests that kind of culturally as a nation and as a community, we're ready to revisit um, and have some hard conversations, like you said. I, I think that, you know, as people talk about this part of Atlanta's history, people just cannot believe that it even happened. And it was very real. And for people like me who grew up in Atlanta during that time, it's a very painful part in our in the history of our city. And as a, a mother, I cannot imagine what this felt like for the families that were directly impacted. And so I'm glad that um, we're able to have this conversation and to create some type of lasting legacy that will give comfort to these families. We're going to keep talking about crime here uh, before we take another break. Uh, Lee Vonderhaar asks on Facebook, what is Bottoms doing about crime and gangs? Gangs are a significant problem in our city. And I've shared publicly before, my family was directly impacted when my nephew was killed five years ago. Case of mistaken identity, he was not affiliated with a gang. He was a college student visiting a friend's apartment. And um, there was a, a inter-gang fight going on and someone opened fire on his car. So this is, it's a, it's a very real problem in our city. I think that our police department is doing a great job in arresting and targeting these gang members. But for my family specifically, it's after the fact. So what we have to do is be more proactive. It's not just about arresting people after they commit a crime. It's about making sure that we're cutting it off at the root. And it's part of the reason that we are working very closely with the Obama Foundation to relaunch My Brother's Keeper, which is focused specifically on young men of color, creating opportunities for them so that they can make other choices. Uh, working closely with the Atlanta Police Foundation, we just cut the ribbon on our second at Promise Center. We will cut the ribbon on a third one very soon on Campbellton Road at the Young Family YMCA. And it's about creating a pathway, an alternative pathway for what many of these young men feel as their options are um, in their communities. We're gonna take a quick break, but I actually wanted, since you brought up my brother's keeper, I wanted to let you know that we have a close listener named Joel Diaz, who was listening, I think when you've made that first announcement here on this program, mm -hmm. and he tweeted, um, he just tweeted me and he said that he just met his little and the family um, over the weekend. And he, okay, Joel Diaz tweets, met my little and his family this past Saturday. Thank you, Keisha Bottoms, for bringing attention to uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters ATL. Well, thank you, Joel, and to all of the volunteers who've signed up. I think I was a bit ambitious in the stats that I had given in terms of the number of people um, that had actually been matched because there were many people who expressed interest and then there's a, a very lengthy matching process to make sure that people are able to get through the back ch background check, et cetera. So I'm glad to hear that Joel has made it through and he's, his match has been made. 
We're going to take a break. Stick around. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is answering your questions next, including would Atlanta ever impose an anti-idling law for trucks to curb emissions? Mm -hmm. You never know what questions are going to come in from listeners. Stick around after this short break. Uh, we've heard from several people about affordable housing for people living with HIV. For our audience, there's a program called HOPWA. Is that yes. the, the acronym? It refers to Housing Opportunities for Persons Living with AIDS. It's a federal program established to provide housing assistance for low-income persons living with HIV, AIDS, and their families. So funding for this program is getting cut from $23 million to $9 million. This was an act of Congress. Is that accurate? This was from the federal government, not a decision made by our city. But we have a very aggressive housing program in place. Um, we've announced it before $1 billion towards affordable housing. And part of that will be to make sure that communities that are in need of housing, specific groups like those uh, dealing with HIV and AIDS and those who are homeless, et cetera, veterans, are also a part of our initiative. And so this is a significant blow to the city to have a funding cut that's significant, but we will continue to push forward with our goal to create and preserve 20,000 units of affordable and workplace housing by the year of 2026. Malcolm Reed sent us a message on Twitter. As a person living with HIV, I want Mayor Bottoms to set affordable housing units aside for people who could face homelessness when HAPWA is cut by over half. So are there plans to actually designate and maybe quarantine some of those uh, spaces for particularly people living with HIV and their families? It's certainly a part of our plan of 20,000 units. We know that this is a significant population in the city of Atlanta, extremely important. It's the reason that we moved our HAPWA program under our Partners for Home which has been administering our program for short-term and long-term um, affordable supportive housing. And it is certainly um, consideration for us for those suffering from HIV and AIDS, but we want to make sure that we are taking into account all of our vulnerable communities, including those living with HIV and AIDS. And I should say by quarantine, I simply mean setting them aside to be uh, specific for those families. Now, Atlanta's had a couple of years to plan for this. Why aren't we ready? Well, again, we have a very aggressive housing plan in place. And it's part of the reason that we appointed a chief housing officer in the city of Atlanta. And so we aren't specific in terms of setting aside a certain number for people living with HIV and AIDS or a certain number for veterans, et cetera. But we are very clear that it will be 20,000 units. And as we look at our most vulnerable populations, then we will make sure that we are working to achieve that goal with those populations in mind. This is a, an issue that we'll continue to get questions on and we'll continue to ask the mayor. Uh, she's here in the studio with us every month uh, so we can conti continue to ask as this progress moves, pro process moves forward. And I, I think that it is worth noting that with so many programs, we're having to look at the local level in ways that we did not have to in the past, that for many years we were able to get a significant amount of support from our federal partners. And this is another example of the way things have changed the past couple of years. Um, but we'll continue to make our plans and to work accordingly. And um, to the extent that we can get federal and state support, then we are happy to receive it. But otherwise, we will continue to go it alone if that's what we need to do in the city. 
Thank you, Mayor Bottoms. We've got some questions on Facebook Live. We've got Brent Rawls McQuillian, who says on, oh, actually on Twitter, do you support a second regional airport? I do not. I do not. I what? think that um, by everything that I've been told about a second airport, it's a lot more complicated than that. Our new airport lead, or he's not that new anymore, but uh, John Selden, who's the general manager of Hartsville-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, came from Kennedy in New York. And there are two uh, airports in New York. He's also a former pilot. And what he said to me is that you have to take into consideration how much you slow down air traffic because there's only so much airspace that you have. And so many people think that it is much more expedient to have a second airport when in fact, air traffic gets slowed down significantly when you are competing for airspace. So I think that we need to continue to focus to build and expand Hartsville-Jackson, which continues to be the world's busiest airport and make sure that we can uh, make whatever physical changes we need to make to that airport to make it continue to make it the most efficient in the world. It seems like it's always under some kind of construction or expansion. Well, it's because Atlanta is probably the, the biggest hub in the entire world. Everybody flies through Hartsville-Jackson, um, whether it's domestic flights, which you can get to 80% of the continental United States in less than two hours from Hartsville-Jackson, or any number of our international flights, and it's a hub for Delta Airlines. And so it's regarded around the world, and I think to build a second airport would tamper with the success of Hartsville-Jackson, which, by the way, is owned and controlled by the city of Atlanta, and it's our hope that that stays that way. Do you anticipate, since you're going to bring it up, Mayor, I'm going to ask you, do you anticipate another bill in the legislature come January, the 2020 General Assembly, to try to have state, the state take some control of the Atlanta airport? I hope not, but we'll be ready to address it just as we did the last session. And thankfully, uh, reasonable minds prevailed and um, the airport continues to be owned and operated by the city of Atlanta. And in the meantime, we've also put in even more things in place to make sure that our procurement process is working as it should. We just got a recommendation from the task force that was to look at our entire uh, integrity process and transparency process in the city of Atlanta. We've gotten a recommendation. This task force is led by Justice, former Justice Leah Sears from the Supreme Court. Also, there were people across the board former U.S. attorney, former city attorneys, et cetera. And the recommendation has been that we create an inspector general in the city of Atlanta. So we'll work with our state partners to make sure that happens. Why do we need another, you know, big title in person in order to do, you would suggest, auditing and kind of fact-checking that the city should already be doing? Well, we are doing that, but what they've said is that we need to roll this under another position. So we have an ethics department, we have an audit department, and what their recommendation has been is that we, in some ways, roll the ethics and audit functions under the inspector general so that we can streamline this, that this be an independently appointed position um, with independent protections and safeguards. So whether it's the mayor or the city council, you can't come in and remove them if you don't like the feedback that you're getting. And this is something that we've seen in other cities. And so I look 
forward to us working to make sure that we're able to implement this recommendation in Atlanta. We have so many transportation questions to ask you, but I'm gonna go with Robbie Greenwald, who's assistant professor of Georgia State University School of Public Health, who asked from a public health perspective, will the city increase support for transportation alternatives in a meaningful way and here's, I think, the most interesting thing about this question. So that we can finally break the cycle of each new resident adding one more car to an overcapacity network. I think what he's asking is, should Atlanta try to become a city where you don't actually need a car? I think that that is the goal, but I also think that it will require something much bigger than addressing a transportation network. We have to look at people who are coming in from other parts of the metro area to work inside of the city, primarily because they can't afford to live in the city. So we can't look at just transportation without looking at affordable housing, without looking at our school system and where people are able to move and put their kids in, in a school district that's thriving. And so I think that we have to look at it comprehensively. I think transportation is a part of it, but I think it's about so much more. Mayor of Buckhead asks on Twitter, is the city building complete streets with bike lanes anytime soon? We are, so we have a very aggressive plan, a plan to, to improve 20 corridors within the city. And I actually have some stats that I wrote down on that. So I want to make sure that I got it right. It's um, the action plan for safer streets, two years, $5 million worth of investments to 20 corridors. And you'll start to see pop-up lanes throughout the city. You have probably started to see them already um, because we can't wait for the permanent infrastructure. We want to make sure that we have safer streets now. And hopefully people are already using these pop-up bike lanes and walking lanes, and they are starting to see and feel that our streets are safer. But what I will also say, something that people have to be mindful of, even with all of the scooter accidents that we've had in the city, a number of these accidents have been because people on the scooters are running into cars, not vice versa. And so I just encourage people as we begin to explore and use these alternative means of transportation, that you still have to follow all of the, the rules of the road, put on a helmet and be thoughtful um, about how you navigate the city because it's not always the people in the cars who are the culprit. To be fair, though, the rules have been changing for scooter drivers, right? Riders, they started on the sidewalk and then they, but now officially scooters have to be in the roads. Is that correct? And we've also instituted the nighttime ban, 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. Um, you are not supposed to be on the scooter. They're supposed to be turned off. Sometimes you'll see people after 9 p.m., but it's because you will be allowed to finish your trip if you begin your ride before 9 p.m. But what we found by and large, a number of our accidents were happening between 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. Here's a question from a listener named Hadi Irvani who emails, New York City has an anti-idling law where we as citizens can get paid to help improve air quality. I think you can get a fee for turning somebody in. So uh, <laughs> Hadi asks, why don't we get the same in Atlanta for the health of our children in the city? So this is really an air quality question. I think that's something that we need to look at in the city. And I look forward to looking at what New York City has done to see if it's something that perhaps will be appropriate to institute in Atlanta. Uh, I'm a little bit mixed up with all my questions, so I'm going to go here to Facebook. Moshi, uh, let's see, 
stand by. Sharon Marshall sent us an email asking, what can we do to truly make Atlanta a leader in mental health reform? It seems that jails get more attention than the conditions of mental facilities. Um, that's a very interesting question, a very timely question. And I have recently charged our team, we've appointed a new chief health officer uh, to help us with issues such as HIV and AIDS, uh, mental health issues um, in the city. Her name is Angelica Jeter, she's phenomenal. Um, but part of what I've charged her with doing is helping us to create a citywide conversation and initiative around mental health. And so I look forward to sharing more about that and what we're seeing um, specifically in our children, we're seeing children with anxiety levels like we've never seen before. Many of them are suffering from post-traumatic stress because of the violence in communities in a way that you see people returning from war, suffering from anxiety, um, and also depression in many people, not just our young people, but also with adults. And I think that it's a very important conversation and often, uh, we are ashamed to have that conversation. I have a good friend, Shanti Doss, who has an initiative called Silence the Shame, because people will talk about having high blood pressure or, or being diabetic or receiving cancer treatment, but nobody wants to talk about mental health and depression. And it's just as real and um, the impact is just as significant. Shanti's doing great advocacy on she that. She is. Yeah, she really does represent the city of Atlanta so well. We have to take a very quick break. Stick around. Mayor Bottoms is answering more of your questions next after this break. I will start with uh, one that came in earlier. Dave Ederer, who's a PhD candidate at Georgia Tech's School of Civil and Environmental Engineering, asks, where will the city provide dedicated right-of-way transit services, e.g. buses? Well, we'll do it throughout the city. And we are looking at a number of our bus routes and they have not uh, been comprehensively examined in decades. So we are actually working on that now, along with MARTA to take a look at our bus routes and to make sure that we have dedicated lanes for these rapid um, bus transit systems. And it's a part of really, um, in so many ways, reimagining who we are as a city. In so many ways, Atlanta still operates as if it's a small town when we know that's not the case anymore. And it's not just about connecting people within the city, it's about getting people in and out of our city. We are a population of around 500,000 people by day. Uh, by night, we swell to over a million by day. And so as we look at alternative methods of transportation outside of our cars, we're looking at bus rapid transit lanes, we're looking at light rail, we're looking at heavy rail expansion, and you'll probably see a lot of our existing roadways um, converted to lanes specifically for the bus rapid transit system. Do you get pushback from drivers though, who say, you know, we only have so much space to get where we're going, you take away one whole lane? For we do, and something that I'm mindful of, because I live in the Cascade area of town, just outside the perimeter, even if I wanted to take the bus or rail into the city each day, it's not practical for me to do it. To get to my closest bus stop, I would have to walk a mile and I don't have um, 
sidewalk connectivity. Now, people do it every day because they have to. But what we want to make sure is that there are people who have options like me can also have the ease and safety of getting to a bus stop and then getting on transit. And so I'm mindful that people who live in the city don't always recognize how challenging it is for people who live outside of these connected railways and roadways um, to access the city. So um, it's a change is difficult. Change is always difficult, but it's necessary. And I think that as we continue to make the changes, then people will begin to use these lanes and we'll see that it's for the good for the long term. John Mordock asks about the city's southeast quadrant. John asks, is there any plan to double deck Moreland Avenue? And I don't even know what double deck means. I don't Unless, know what is that, that a transportation term? I don't know what that means okay. <laughs> either. But there's a lot of significant improvements happening along that corridor. Uh, roadway improvements, a lot of businesses are coming into the area. Um, so we'll have to look that up for the next time. Well, that's what he says. He says endless development in Southeast Atlanta is making rush hour ever more untenable on the major artery on the east side. Um, but so. I do want to, going back to a previous question about um, where I talked about, it's not just about transit, it's about affordable housing, schools. The east side has some of the, one of the best cluster of schools in the entire city. So that's why you have a lot of families seeking to move onto the east side so that they can put their kids into certain school clusters. And I think it's important that we improve our schools throughout the city so that people will have reasons, especially with young families, to move into other areas. We're going to stick with uh, transportation for the moment. When will MARTA complete the Atlanta Beltline light rail train system? That's a Facebook from a question from Facebook. Did I read that right? When will MARTA complete the Atlanta Beltline light rail train system on the Beltline? Well, it's, it's a part of the network of systems that we're looking to complete. And it won't be in the next five years, but hopefully it will be soon. But it's a matter of getting funding and also making sure, again, the Beltline is a significant addition to our city, but there's so many people with needs who don't live on the Beltline. So it's about making sure that we are being equitable and spreading the limited funding that we have. So here's another quality of life question, moving away from transportation for just a minute, even though we could spend an entire hour. Tom Miller asks on email, he says about six months ago, my collectors, trash collectors, made me get rid of my 50 gallon bin and start using the larger city issue size bin. It's a struggle for this 68 year old to drag the larger bin down to the street and it's never close to full. Can seniors get an exemption? Well, actually seniors can get assistance with even taking their bins down to the street. So we do offer a service to seniors that if you are unable um, for physical reasons to take your bin down to the street, then our trash collectors will go to your house, the side of your house or the back of your house and take them down for you. I encourage him to please call 311 to make that request and I will also take uh, his his Twitter handle or social email, media, uh -huh. hand, his email, and we'll contact him directly to help facilitate that. I never would have known that. So that's yeah. fantastic. Thanks for letting me know. So we're going to go to kind of the rapid fire round, Mayor. We're getting closer to the holidays. So 
inevitably you're going to get a question about your holiday cooking. <laughs> Amphitheater, Amphitweeter on Twitter has already kicked us off for the holiday season, and you know this is not going to be the last one. It's only October right now. Where did you learn to make macaroni and cheese? Well, first of all, my macaroni and cheese is delicious, but it's so funny. Um, if you watch social media, my mother had the biggest laugh of all about my macaroni and cheese. And when I put all the food out on Christmas, she said she looked at that macaroni and cheese and said, who in the world brought this? Because it doesn't look like hers, but I'll tell you a little secret. I sneak cauliflower into my macaroni and cheese to try and sneak vegetables in with my kids. And as a mother of four, I used whatever cheese I had in the refrigerator. So that day, I had <laughs> four cheese Mexican cheese. But, <laughs> so it wasn't as pretty as people like, but it was very tasty. But my mother uh, was watching me make it not too long ago, and she told me exactly where I had gone wrong. So uh, she, she says that I clearly did not learn from her. But I'll see if the public deserves to see my mac and cheese this holiday season. <laughs> well, we can leave it to our mothers to give us that little piece of feedback, right? Yes, but, but <laughs> she laughed harder than anybody in America about the way my mac and cheese looked. And for any of our audience members who aren't familiar, uh, the mayor made, uh, I would say you went viral last <laughs> Thanksgiving did. posting her, um, her Thanksgiving food. So. But it was still very good. I had uh, several teenagers who had already wiped out one pan, so they didn't complain about the way it tasted. <laughs> uh, we have another question from Village Guru who asks on Instagram, what efforts are being made toward licensure for certified professional midwives? Will this include training from the health department? Will this outlaw traditional midwives? This may not be a city of Atlanta issue, but it's an audience question. Well, thank you. This feels just like the campaign trail. You don't know what you'll be asked, but uh, that is a state question. Uh, those licenses come from the state and are managed by the Fulton County Health Department and the State Department of Health. So that's not a question that I am able to answer, but it's a very good question. Taka, Tosh, sorry, I'm not going to get this right. Somebody on Instagram asked, somebody with a very creative Instagram handle asked, how can we get programs in the schools to teach kids financial literacy and credit? Well, we are working with our Bank On initiative in the city, and that is where we help people understand what it means to be underbanked, meaning you shouldn't go to a check cashing place and pay these very high fees that it's much more cost efficient to establish a bank account. So it's a part of a citywide initiative that we're having. But that's an interesting question I was sharing with someone when I was at Douglas High School and I went to summer school one year, I took a financial literacy class and it's where I learned to write a check. And what's interesting about that, I didn't learn it at home. And I don't recall my, my mom or dad ever showing me how to write a check. But it's my reminder that if we don't give this information to our kids in school, they otherwise may not get it. I still have the first bank account that I opened uh, when I was 17 years old. And so I think it speaks to the need for us to work with our kids. And hopefully with our Bank On initiative, we'll be able to work with the Atlanta Public Schools to expand this into our school system. It's called Bank On? Bank On. And it's a mayor's office working through the schools. It's the mayor's office working with many of our banks to 
help primarily low-income people establish alternative means to managing and saving their money outside of the traditional check-cashing places that we see in many of our vulnerable communities. Um, but I do think an expansion into our school system would be appropriate. It's unbelievable. I mean, I think of my K-12 through education, not a word about financial literacy. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> We have many more questions, but we're going to have to put them off for future shows. Mayor Bottoms is with me every month. So if you didn't get your question answered, please keep it there. You can email, tweet, or put it on Facebook. And we will have another hour with the mayor in November and December. And maybe we'll hear some more comments on your holiday cooking. And maybe I'll bring some mac and cheese. I don't know. <laughs> I would not turn that away. <laughs> right. I love mac and cheese. That is all the time we have for this month's edition of Ask the Mayor. Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you for answering our questions today. Thank you for having me. And thanks also to our listening and viewing audience and to all of the crew here at GPB who make this program possible, including Sophia Salaby and Sandy Malcolm. We have many other team members who support this program. Thanks to all of you. GPB's Vice President of News is Mary Lynn Ryan and our Chief Content Officer is Alison Hashimoto. We will be back next month with another Ask the Mayor with Keisha Lance Bottoms answering your questions live here on GPB Atlanta 88.5 and on the GPB News Facebook page. Page. 